Okay, we're going to begin dealing <clears throat> with the Westminster Confession of Faith for today. But let's pray. Our Lord, we're very sensitive, you said, when you pray. And while we breathe, we pray. And teach us that all the time, even when we're in a class, and we'll be offering up prayers to the Lord, communing with you. Lord, teach us that glorious liberty of the children of God to always be in fellowship with our Father in heaven through the Lord Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And now, our Lord, as we begin what will be a lengthy study for us, our Lord, we pray that we will learn not only the power and the beauty, but the goodness of sound doctrine, sound teaching, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Um, I'm sure you've all heard it. Uh, maybe you've even said it. I don't know. Um, no creed but the Bible. Uh, or no creed but Christ. And that's often said as a, a rejoinder or a response or even a rebuke uh, to those of us who have something called a confession of faith and catechisms. Uh, we have no creed but the Bible. We have no creed but Christ. That automatically brings up some questions. What does the Bible say? As soon as you answer that, you have a confession, right? You're, you're saying what the Word of God says or what you believe it says. When you answer that, what the Bible says, are you answering correctly? Another question to ask. What does the Bible say about fill in the blank? What does it say against fill in the blank? Why don't you write it down so that it can be assessed? And yeah, those are the questions that you ask when people, well-meaning though they may be, say no creed but the Bible or no creed but Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, all churches have creeds. A creed simply is a statement of what you believe or what the church believes or what the pastor believes that Sunday. All churches have creeds and confessions. Confession is to say what you believe the Word of God says. The question is, are they written down? And are they available for public scrutiny? Well, if it's what the Word of God says, and the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they searched the Scriptures daily, whether these things are so, why don't you have your creed available for public scrutiny? Or are they just what a pastor or a church leader believes at the time? Sadly, that's a lot of what it is. But all churches have creeds. Um, now, let, let's, that's why we're going to take today to, talk, to develop that a little bit more, okay? You need to have your Bibles, and if you need to have, anybody need Joel, pass these out. I do want you to look in your scriptures. Um, the New Testament statements... <clears throat> um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand or you can pick one up. The New Testament on, I'm just going to use the phrase statements of faith, okay? Statements of, of faith. Jude, and you don't have to 
do a chapter here, just Jude 3. And Jude is right before the book of Revelation. And what's interesting is that most of these texts about statements of faith or creeds, a creed simply is what I believe, credo is I believe, or confession, a full statement of what I believe. So the book of Jude, number 3. <clears throat> and, and it's very interesting, you're... you're uh, you're, you're getting near the end of the, of, the New, of the New Testament period, which probably was about A.D. 70. Not all agree on that, but about A.D. 70. And, and the latter books of the New Testament are being written. And it's usually here where you have this reference to teaching, Jude 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you Listen, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What is it? What's the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? And you say, well, it's, it's given in the New Testament. Start, start listing it out. Well, that's a creed. That, that's a confession. The Bible also speaks in many cases in the New Testament of the form of doctrine or the form of sound doctrine. Romans 6 and verse 17. Um, from the heart, be obedient to, to, the, to, the, to what was committed to you. It's literally a compendium or a form of teaching delivered to you. Be obedient from the heart to, to the form of teaching that was delivered to you. What is it? What is that form of teaching? Well, when you start getting specific, that's a creed or a confession. Romans 16 and verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create stumbling blocks. Remember, what does the Bible speak against? Okay. Uh, divisions and stumbling blocks <clears throat> contrary to the teaching in which you were discipled. Turn away from them. How, how do you know what that is? How, how do you know what that teaching is that causes divisions and creates stumbling blocks? How do you know what to turn away from? And, and you can do more, just the word study in the New Testament on teaching or doctrine, okay? But what I'm interested in particular is this phrase, sound doctrine. And you can write down what those texts are. 1 Timothy 1.10, 1 Timothy 1.10. Notice these are, these are written to, to a minister, to, to, to uh, Timothy as a minister. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.6, good doctrine. 2 Timothy 4.3, sound doctrine. And likewise, Titus 1.9 and 2.1 or doctrine that accords with godliness. And, and, and these, these, the first and second Timothy and Titus, they're written to ministers about what they're supposed to do in the churches, right? And, and the, the word, the Greek word is essentially hygienic. Hygienic teaching. Now when you have hygiene, it's for your health, right? You practice good hygiene, it's for your health. And I don't think that's the main reason, meaning for this. Sound but it is something that promotes health, not necessarily bodily health, 
but, but it promotes health of the whole person, okay? So hygienic, sound, health giving is probably the, the good way to translate it, health giving doctrine. Doctrine or teaching is like elements in the air, okay? You breathe them all the time. You, you can't but breathe these things in. And they're either going to make you healthy or they're going to make you sick. Now, see, and you, you, all you got to do is television, radio, cable, whatever you, you get your thing. Um, uh, you are the most important person in the world. Well, that's a form of teaching that's not hygienic, right? But, but you begin to think like this and it affects you. All right, so, so, that, so I'm just making the point that there is doctrine, there is all doctrine is teaching, it's teaching that affects you one way or the other. Okay, so that's the New Testament on essentially statements of faith, sound doctrine, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now, why creeds and confessions? Why, why do we have this, the confession of faith and catechisms of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church? And it's a big book, probably four-fifths of which is scripture references. But, but why, why do you have this? Why, why is that important? Um, and I don't want you to be on the defensive about this as Orthodox Presbyterians. Oh, yeah, 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 one of those churches, and you've got this, this, this confession. I want you to be able to say, you don't have a confession? Nah. No creed but the Bible. Say, I'm really concerned for you. And I'm concerned for the church of which you're a part. In fact, I would be very concerned if I went to that church. Now, I don't mean this in a hateful way, folks, but I've kind of gotten to the point that Reformed people get criticized for this stuff when, in fact, we ought to be turning these things on their heads. Now, why creeds and confessions? And there is a booklet. <clears throat> I don't think it's Carl Truman's best, but it's, but it's still helpful. Uh, and it's called Why Christians Need Confessions. A message, message from the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And I, I used it, but I think, I think it could be put in a little bit better way. So, so here's the way I would deal with it. Why creeds and confessions? Number one, we need full written statements of what the Word of God teaches. That's <laughs> pretty obvious. We need written, full written statements of what the Word of God teaches and of what's truly important. We'll come back to that. The confession doesn't address every issue, but it addresses what is truly important. God, I think that's pretty important. So there's a whole section on God. Man, that's pretty important. Christ, salvation, justification, adoption, sanctification, marriage and divorce. The Westminster Confession is the only Reformed confession with a whole section on that, for which I'm so thankful. Vows. We say, well, what do we have to do with vows? Well, didn't we receive church members in for three weeks? Marriage, vows, baptismal, vows. The church, the state of man after death. What, what do you believe about that? Eternity. So, so we need full written statements of what the Word of God teaches or what is truly important. And think of it this way. If you think of a church as a house with lots of rooms in it, okay? 
A confession is your blueprint, I don't think they still use those, but a blueprint that lays out what each of those rooms is. This is the room in which we deal with who God is. This is the room in which we deal with who Christ is and, and then what salvation is and, and uh, what the state is and so on. So it's, the confession is a, is a blueprint or it's a statement of, of the different rooms in the house of a, of a particular church. And again, we're honest, we write out what those things mean. So that's number one. We really need a full statement of what the Word of God teaches and of what is truly important. Number two, we need a full statement of the doctrinal standards to be upheld by the officers of the church. Now, this is a new concept for a lot of people. We need a full statement of the doctrinal standards to be upheld by the officers in the church. You say, well, where do you get this? Well, again, the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy 1.3. Timothy was, as best as we would describe it, a minister who's, who's set apart for the preaching and teaching of the word. Paul says to Timothy, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any other doctrine. Well, what other doctrine? Clearly, Paul had imparted to Timothy the doctrines to teach. And as a minister, his work in Ephesus, where he was located in Turkey, is to charge certain people not to teach certain things. Now, this doesn't fit with our culture today, where everything is supposed to be acceptable in the church. No, it's not. And you'll give you an analogy in just a, a little bit. But certain things are not to be taught. Above all, a confusion of, of grace and works in, in salvation. Elders, Acts 20 and verse 28. Paul calls the elders of the church to Miletus, which was an island in the Mediterranean. And he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock over which, and actually I think it's really among which, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Why? Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Do you believe that? That there are forces and individuals and ideas that are really dangerous to you? And, and so Paul says the, the way you deal with that is to, to watch over the flood. It doesn't specifically speak of teaching here, but he said already, I didn't shun to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And also for elders, Titus 1 and verse 9, <clears throat> elders must hold, um, must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that they might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, health-giving doctrine, and also rebuke those who contradict it. So now, now that's, that's not a charge given to all people, but to elders, it is a charge that's given to them, which is why we require a confessional subscription for uh, all of those who are elders and deacons. Now, a couple notes on that. <clears throat> Ask people, are you concerned about the doctrine you're getting at church? Right now, most people are not. So long as something's going on in the church that makes them happy. Usually the music. 
Are you concerned about the doctrine you're getting in church? <clears throat> Not really. Well, so let, me, let me give you an illustration. Let me give you, ask you this. Let's say you've got a doctor and he admits, or others know for a fact, one, he habitually gives the wrong medicine. Number two, he habitually gives bad medicine. Or number three, he's been known to give poison to people. You don't think that happens? Read about some of the main mega preachers in the United States, who in some cases don't even hold an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. Doctors who give the wrong medicine, bad medicine, or poison. But I like the music in the office. How do you respond to that? That, folks, is how serious this is. Should we be better with our music? Yes, you keep working on it. But if you take in poisonous teaching because you like the music in the office, you're going to kill yourself. Number two, under we need a full statement of the doctrinal standards to be upheld by the officers of the church. There's a difference between officers and non-officers. You deal with an officer of the church, you want to know that that person, particularly an elder, is going to represent rightly the doctrine of the church of which you are a part. If he doesn't, that's dishonest. And it's, it's not good for you, all right? But when it comes to non-officers, the standards are standards to which we hope you will move, okay? The regulative principle of worship. Okay, that's uh, an easier way to put it. It's regulated by the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? And, and that's not going to be primed into your DNA as a Christian. But over, and the officers need to hold to that view that worship is to be regulated not by what the Scriptures permit, but by what they command. For most of us, that's a new idea. Officers move you along to understand it because it's biblical. And we could go into any number of different areas about that. Okay, but that's why there's that difference. Why officer training? Why officer subscription? It's for your good, right, um, in that regard. So anyway, we need a full statement of the doctrinal standards to be upheld by the officers of the church. Number three, these standards connect us with the church of all ages. And I'd love to spend more time Oh, this, because it's a beautiful biblical teaching. Here, here Israel has a confession. Uh, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. All right, and, and, uh, and there's a basic confession, and then there's others that develop. And then in the New Testament, you could make the case Philippians 2 was an early confession. And then in, in the development of the church, you have the formation. You realize, we say, Jesus, who is Jesus Christ? He is God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. There are 300 years of doctrinal discussion and formulation and study of the Scripture that enabled the church to come up with that statement. Okay, what does the Word of God say about this? And when the church has 
honed those things over the years, you want to confess your faith with the church of all ages as well. The early church said, Jesus is Lord. You know my favorite statement, because Jesus is Lord, Caesar isn't. What does that mean? Who's Jesus? What does it mean that he's Lord? And how does that bear on the culture that you're in? And, and that got expanded through the Christian church and recorded in many ways in what we know of as doctrinal standards. And so Hebrews 12 and verse 1, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. We're not in this alone. We're in an arena, and then we are running with the, the saints one way or another, knowing what we're doing. And when we confess what they confessed, uh, that's a way of showing we're not, we're not individualists. Hebrews 12 and verse 23, we are with the church of the firstborn who are, who are in, enrolled in heaven. They confess their faith, so do we. And then Jude 3, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And, and we even sing about that faith of our fathers living still and so on. Okay? Um, now, that is an antidote to what has been called by more than one person the arrogance of the modern. It honors what church leaders have wrestled with and worked with over many centuries. And, and that's great. That's why I, when I talk about my study, um, uh, yeah, I don't talk first about my books. <clears throat> but I have teachers. I have a Charles Spurgeon. I have a, a John Piper. I have a, a Herman Bovink. And, and I have, a, and I have a Benjamin Warfield. And these were real people. And they wrestled. They wrestled with Scripture. And through various ways, you know that those wrestlings, by and large, ended up in the right place. And, and you're always discerning with everything that you read. And, and you're being ministered to by these people. That's glorious. And that's what, when you're confessing your faith, really, that's what you're doing in many ways in, in, a, rather, in a rather simple and basic way. So uh, these standards connect us with the church of all ages. It's why in our worship, we have certain things like, you know, the, the Lord be with you and also with you. The early church had that. doesn't mean we have to do it, but, but it connects us with the worship of God's people in all ages. And the last one is this. And Dr. Truman mentioned this. I had to admit I never thought of it, but the more I chewed on it, he's absolutely right. Creeds and confessions set biblical boundaries to church power. Creeds and confessions send biblical boundaries to church power. If you're going to be a member of this church, you have to hold this view of the end times. And sometimes you say, where do you get that view of the end times? If you're going to be a member of this church, you must admit that board games are wrong. They are forms of gambling. If you're going to be a member of this church, you cannot go to movies. If you're going to be a member of the... And go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. <clears throat> Thank God confessions keep us from that. Because that's a form of legalism, folks, and it adds to what the Scriptures say. Now let me give you some, some other examples that hit home more closely. Uh, years ago we had a, a man, and he was insistent. People don't homeschool their children. They have to be disciplined. Now, I happen to be a big fan of homeschooling. I, uh, we, we did it when 
I still think if you can have a Christian school, it's better, but you can't always do that. So I'm a big fan of homeschooling. The Bible doesn't mandate it any place. It says, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the child training and admonition of the Lord. And if you in faith believe you can still have your children in a state school, if I were at that age, I wouldn't believe it, but if you believe that, and you're working hard to compensate for that, and you're standing for what's right, then that's fully acceptable, whether you happen to agree with it or not. I had to ask the brother, so you're going to discipline people if they don't homeschool their children? Vegans. I'm not a vegan. Although, quite frankly, we all are. Nan is wonderful with this. Ah, you Americans, you eat too much meat. And she's right, okay? <laughs> but, okay, so, but we don't require that. You have vegans in the church, don't look down on them. That's their conviction, that's fine. You have no right to impose it on somebody else. Now let me get really, really close. Democrats and Republicans. Once, once in seminary, I was speaking with a pastor, about a professor, about a certain Orthodox Presbyterian church. His answer was, you go there as a pastor, so long as you're a Republican, you're okay. That's abominable. That is abominable. I'll be real frank with you right here. I was telling a friend of mine, our financial advisor is a Democrat, and we have wonderful chats. They said, oh, the Democrat party that you hold to a left station a long time ago, and he, and he teases. But I said to him the last time we got together, I said, you know, Fran, I, I'm being tempted to become a Democrat. He said, you are? I said, yeah, you know what's doing it? He said, what? I said, the Republicans. <laughs> now, okay, you, you get the point, folks. Have your convictions. Please have your convictions. But don't, don't impose that on the church. Why? Those are not part of our doctrinal standards. Even when it comes to millennial views, the standards, there were different views represented. And so the, at the Westminster Assembly that I'll, I'll mention, and so pre-mill, uh, post-mill, on-mill, so long as you believe that Christ is going to come back in bodily form. Okay, so, the, and, and there's other areas a little bit more technical than that. Okay, so I, I love that. I think that's great. The confessional standard, where, where it doesn't speak, then you have liberty within the church. Now, why the Westminster Confession of Faith? And I'll do this rather quickly. Uh, or the Confession of Faith as adopted by the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Okay, with the proof text. Why that one? Well, Protestant Reformation, you've got the, 15, the 1500s. And there was a lot of warfare that went on. The early, really the earliest of the confessions, we, we use it in the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgian Confession, but they use today. But over that hundred years, Reformed churches uh, in particular, Lutheran churches too, but our backgrounds Reformed, they wrote down what they believed so that people knew. This was just accepted. The stuff that I covered here was accepted. And, and, but then you had many of these doctrinal standards. Now, if you move to England uh, in, the, in the 1600s, the, the 17th century, uh, there was a lot of division in there. You had uh, England, had, had, uh, the, the king of England had broken from the Church of Rome because the Pope wouldn't let him have another wife to have a son, so they started what we called the Anglican Church. 
and, and, or the Episcopal, what we know as the Episcopal Church. And then in Scotland, you had the Presbyterians. And they didn't want the Anglicans having a bishop imposing their service book on them, their, their worship book, because the scriptures didn't do it. And then in the continent, you had the Reformed churches, the Calvinistic churches, and you had the Lutheran churches, and then later you're going to get the Baptist churches, the Methodist churches, okay, but that's really later than, than what we're dealing with here. So there had to be some statement of what, of, of basically what did Protestants Reformed Protestants, what, what did they believe? And the Westminster Confession is admitted to be the most mature and fullest statement of the Christian faith as, as developed in the Protestant Reformation. Even our dear Calvinistic Baptist brothers and sisters have modified the Confession of Faith for their own 1689 Confession. Even they recognize all of that. So real quickly, 1643, the Civil War in England, and there was something called the Long Parliament that was dominated by the Puritans and by Presbyterians. Puritans, we want to bring the church into conformity with the Word of God. Presbyterians who said, if you want a church in conformity with the Word of God, it's going to be Presbyterian. <laughs> okay, so it's basically governed, governed by elders. And so there was, in this Long Parliament, there was a call to convene an assembly of divines. And these were mostly uh, theological scholars from England and some from Scotland as well that gathered over really, it was about a four-year period. They met almost every day, not all met every day, but they worked through what we know of as the Confession of Faith and then the larger and shorter catechism. And they were to advise Parliament as to how to bring the Church of England into greater conformity with the Church of Scotland and with the Continental Reformed Churches. So that was their goal, and that was the Westminster Assembly. They also dealt with church government and worship. And so you had the Confession of Faith, 1646, the Larger Catechism, 1647, and the Shorter Catechism in 1647. But here's what happened. Okay, England, England is, is uh, run for a while by, by uh, Cromwell. Thomas Cromwell was, a, was an independent in his view of church government. And so he, he disbanded the parliament, and um, he uh, did not like the uh, Presbyterianism. Uh, and then after a while, he, and, and so he ex they expel basically the Presbyterians from parliament. This is politics. Um, and then monarchies restored in 1660, and you go back to the Anglicanism, the established Church of England. But in Scotland, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, um, which was Presbyterian, adopts these standards in 1647 and in 1648, and they've become the standard of all Presbyterian churches that remain faithful to the Scriptures. And I'll be laboring the whole thing. 1788, the Presbyterian Church USA is formed. Uh, they adopt the standards except for a section um, that talked about the magistrate and its connection with the church because we had separation of church and state, and quite frankly, I'm not sure you could defend that part of the, of the standards anyway. And some other very minor revisions and words and so on. 1936, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church adopted this version of the Confession of Faith and Catechisms. One change they did make 
is they eliminated the statement that the Pope is the Antichrist. Not that people didn't believe it, but they believed that was going, really rightly, going beyond the scriptures in, in what was said. And there were some other minor changes. And then this is what's really fascinating. 1940, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church says, we, we really need to focus on these proof texts for the standards that, that they really prove what these standards say. 1940 through, what's the date here? 1940 through, uh, blah, 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 19, 1940, uh, actually, with the, 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 actually began in 1936, uh, but, but there, 1956, there we go, 1940 to, 19, for, for 16 years, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church had a committee working on proof text for the standards. And clearly, if something in the standards was contrary to the scriptures, you, there's ways that you can bring about that change. But even that wasn't satisfactory. So in 1967, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church again has this committee of really you know, brilliant intellects just working on proof texts, which are really about four-fifths of that document. Those proof texts were approved by the General Assembly in 2001, 34 years later, and uh, they are regarded as probably the finest example of the way the scriptures prove these affirmations held not just by the, the Westminster Standards, but others. Okay, So now we call it the Confession of Faith and Catechisms of the OPC. So in conclusion, what are we going to do in this class? Well, I'm calling it the Westminster Confession for today. Um, and my guess is David and I have got to thrash this through a little bit. We'll probably be taking about two years to do this. It'll be the basic teaching of the confessions, but how does it apply to what we're dealing with in our day today? That's, that's going to be the thrust of our teaching through the confession and, and a lot of discussion. I want you to write down your questions and we'll have time for discussion. Why? Because it's health-giving doctrine. And if we're fascinated now talking about the best diets, what, this is, what is now the best diet? And it's still regarded as the Mediterranean diet. Um, <clears throat> so that includes Italians and Greeks. But, um, but, <laughs> but anyway, um, okay, if there could be that fascination with what diet is good for your body, how about the diet that's good for your soul, right? So if they could take that time, we'll do that here. Um, you all have, you'll, you'll have other copies of the Confession of Faith. That doesn't have the proof text. Uh, we can get this if you would like. If you'd like a copy, uh, Joe Matone and I will work out how we get these. But if you'd like a copy of the version with the proof text, we can get that for you. Um, and uh, confess, oh, shorter cat. Yes, we're going to start memorizing the shorter catechism. We'll work on that beginning next week. But what's the goal? Havenites made healthy with sound doctrine. That's, that's the goal of our next couple of years. Havenites made healthy with sound doctrine. Okay? Wow. Age of wonders has not ceased. You may. Thank you for not asking, can I? You've learned that over the years. Good for you. She doesn't say nice anymore. Good. Oh, that's really good. Unless I'm speaking of 
You know, awesome. Uh, now, wait a minute. When you say awesome, it should be awful. God is not some awe. He's full of awe. Many years ago, you couldn't say awesome unless you were referring to Christ. All right. Okay. Now, have you forgotten your question? Now, my question is, we also have um, read from the Heidelberg. Right. So why the Heidelberg, why the Westminster, not the Heidelberg, why not? That is a wonderful, that's a wonderful question. Um, G.I. Williamson addressed it and, and, uh, uh, with, with the right answer. You need the warmth of the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, my, my only comfort in life and death is that I have a faithful Savior. Um, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. They're both true, but there's a difference in atmosphere, right? So you need that. However, the Belgian Confession and the, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism were written decades before the Confession, and they're not nearly as precise they're not nearly as careful, not, not that they're not careful, they're, they're, not, they're not as technically careful as the confession, so you really need both. And that's not, that answer's not unique to me. That's, many have said the same thing. Okay. Just a yeah. comment is yep. that uh, a lot of the creeds and confessions that were a response to um, worldly philosophies that crept yeah, into the sure. church, and it's something that we struggle with today. Yeah. And, and really, it's a great means of raising the children, too, because, you know, a part of the problem within the church is that, you know, we know doctrine, for instance. Mm-hmm. We've never passed it on correctly to our children. Yeah. Yeah, so all right. of a sudden, they grow up, and we realize they don't know the basics of, of the faith. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where using the, the uh, Westminster and the creeds, why it's important when we... we we uh, use them within worship service too. It's a reminder. Exactly who right. Jesus is, and you know, it seems so simple, but it's so powerful. Right. That that's right, and it's so easy to use the words. What do you mean? It, 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 very simple thing. When we sing in Psalm two, "My anointed," I'll mean at some point. Into, that's the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that mean? So as soon as you do that, you have a confession. Now let me give you an example. Your your point. This is this is. And then we'll, any other questions, John? I'm going to ask you to close in prayer in just a moment here. Um, the section in the confession on Christian liberty and liberty of conscience is one is one of the most. See, what, what people think of as, as Christian liberty. Well, I, I I have the freedom to drink a glass of wine. Well, yes, you do, but that's not the point of Christian liberty. Christian liberty is you're free from the doctrines of commandments of men with respect to faith uh, that, that, are, that are either alongside of the Word of God or contrary to it. Yeah, everybody's got a confession of faith, right? The question is, is it right or not? But this has fascinated me for years. God alone is Lord of the conscience. This is Confession of Faith 22. God alone is Lord of the conscience. God alone is Lord of the conscience, and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it if matters of faith or worship. So, for example, you know, the, the, the Bible doesn't say you've got to drive 55 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. It doesn't say that. But, but that's not a matter of your faith. 
Okay, it's not something we confess. It's a matter of the fifth commandment and honoring those. So, so anyway, uh, free from the doctrines of commandments of men which are in anything contrary to the word of God or beside it if matters of faith or worship. So to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience because, because God is telling me, so to speak, I must do this, is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith. Implicit faith is you believe it because I tell you. One of our elders used to call it greyhound theology. Leave the driving to us. Implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. That, that is powerful. You hold teachings that are your faith commitments. The, the body is not made in the image of God. I can do with my body whatever I want. I'll, I'll do it my way. N not only are you going to enslave yourself, it's to destroy liberty of conscience. You'll make yourself insane. That's what we're dealing with in a culture that has a lot of false confessions in it. We've got a while to get there. Okay? Hope you're interested in this. Let's, John, let's stand. And John, why don't you lead us in prayer?